As we know at the top of the program, yesterday marked the 10th anniversary of the beginning of the fiasco that became the Iraq War. Joining us to talk about the failures of the media, or to adequately discuss what was going on in Iraq and, and the whole story, is the best person we can think of. She is a producer, a writer, an on-air talent, both in radio and television, and a fine editor. Christina Borgeson has written Feet to the Fire, the media after 9-11, a topic very much about what we need to talk about. So I'd like to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Christina Borgeson. Thank you. Good to be with you. It's been 10 years. You edited a, a, a fine volume of people musing on our, our journalistic failures here in the United States. And uh, what can we say 10 years on? Is the public finally waking up to the fact that they were bamboozled? Yes. As a matter of fact, what's even more uh, important is that the press is waking up to it and they're talking about it. So um, I think that's good. However, I think the horse is out of the barn already. I mean, it's been 10 years later and we're leaving Iraq, so <clears throat> whatever <laughs> whatever that agenda was meant to promote has has obviously it's been accomplished, and now the press can say, "Oh yes, we did miss the story." And um, I'm not saying that they've consciously done that, but um, you know, it's it's heartbreaking when you look at the price that's been paid. Well, you know. Chris, during the ramp-up, Christina, we kept playing uh, Fredonia's Going to War from the old Marx Brothers Duck Soup movie, <laughs> talking about how, you know, I don't care what they're saying, we are going to go to war in Iraq. And I noticed back then the media kept being very coy about that. And they were sort of playing this game, well, may maybe, maybe this will happen. But, of course, uh, if you were paying attention, you could see what was coming. Well, you know, what's interesting is the same thing is happening... For Iran, I don't know if you if you have seen, for example, John Bolton. He's back on Fox. You know, he was there uh, during the run-up to the Iraq War, and now you know it's all about Iran and Iran's uh, nuclear capabilities. And as a matter of fact, a, a couple years after, not shortly after we went into Iraq, the push, you know, to go into Iran started. But I think it. It was sort of cranked down a little bit because um, people realized that nobody wanted to hear about going to war uh, with Iran. But now it's been cranked up again, and the push is on, and it may not happen exactly the way it happened going into Iraq. It may happen in other ways where we go in to help our friends, or it may happen in, under, in a different form, but it's the same player's. Uh, different president, of course, but same players moving the ball forward. I mean, I see the press behaving much as they did during the run-up to the Iraq War. You know, yes. so I'm I'm not I'm not so optimistic. But by the same token, I do think that generally speaking, the public is far more read on to uh, this sort of multi-government agency collusion that goes on to promote agendas or to cover things up. Look at the banking scandal. Uh, the banking scandal, it's the same thing. Uh, for some reason, the mainstream press just couldn't figure out what was going on. <laughs> right, there's right. no accountability at right. the highest level. Right. Uh, and still there's no accountability for what happened to the, in, during the Iraq War, too. So, um, you know... I don't know if it's moving in that direction because uh, 
you know, the press is talking more openly about how they missed the story, but you know, the accountability is is the bottom line. I, did you read Did you read that uh, young veterans uh, letter? About yes, that I did. Veterans? Yes. Very, very moving to Dick Cheney and and Bush. You know, he's dying. He's under hospice care. And, you know, he's, he's talking about the price that was paid, including, of course, his own life. And um, it's staggering to think about it. It is a moving letter, Christina. I just don't think it's going to find uh, its target audience with the Dick Cheneys and George W. Bushes of the world. I mean, it was never really about uh, what it was portrayed to the public. It was not about weapons of mass destruction. It was not about overturning a dictator. It was about uh, other things, probably the military industry making money and oil. The thing to me that is so still so fantastic and so Alice in Wonderlandish, and I, that's what I mean by fantastic. I don't mean great, but just right. so odd. Was you know they they identify Osama bin Laden as the perpetrator, and then next thing you know, we're going into Afghanistan. When Osama bin Laden, <clears throat> yes, he'd been operating in, there in Afghanistan, but Osama bin Laden is a Saudi, and the apparently the hijackers were Saudis. Now, you know, this is if you buy that that whole scenario and that whole story. And yes. I'm just let's just say for the sake of argument that we're buying it. Why is it that you go war against Afghanistan? First of all, why don't you just go after bin Laden and then go into Saudi Arabia and find out who exactly was making it, you know, giving visas to these guys and where they were operating, because they were not operating in Afghanistan, Mohammed Atta and all those guys. Right, some of them were operating then, in San Diego. <laughs> exactly, well, and Florida. Yeah. And so, and then... And then all of a sudden, there's this left turn into a rock, and it, it, there is just no logic to it whatsoever, particularly since Osama bin Laden was, you know, it, uh, Saddam Hussein is a secularist. Osama bin Laden was not. So they, they were not friends at all. And right. all of a sudden, all this intelligence and all this information and all these dots are being forced to be connected, you know, by basically lies, and yeah. nobody talks about it. Well, nobody I mean, talks about yeah. how everybody just bought this completely illogical, ridiculous story. It's even worse than that. We got Condoleezza Rice talking about how well it was due to intelligence failures. Well, it's because they kept cherry-picking the intelligence and recycling what they wanted to put before the public. So it's not like they were misled. They were the misleaders. What's very interesting about all this is how it all centers around CIA intelligence and you know the the CIA's reports and so on and the other day i found this book that i've had for a long time it's ralph mcgeehy's book he wrote it 30 years ago he was a CIA officer this book was called deadly deceit my 25 years with the CIA mhm i i took this quote from it because it really says something, and it's, it's critical to understanding what happened and how the information, what was going on with the information uh, during the run-up to the war. Mm -hmm. He said, he wrote, and I quote, The CIA is a covert action arm of the presidency. The CIA is not an intelligence agency.
In fact, it acts largely as an anti-intelligence agency, producing only that information wanted by policymakers to support their plans and suppress information that does not support those plans. The CIA often ends up distorting reality, creating out of whole cloth intelligence to justify policies that have already been decided upon. Policymakers then leak this intelligence to the media to deceive us all and gain our support. CIA uses disinformation, much of it aimed at the U.S. public, to mold opinion. That was 30 years ago that Ralph McGeehy wrote that. I wouldn't dispute a single word of it. I think he's nailed it completely. And this is the thing is, it's all this intelligence, intelligence. You keep hearing that word, intelligence, the CIA gathering intelligence. What happened to that, quote, intelligence? It went to the Office of Special Plans, Department of Defense, with Doug, where Doug Fife and his guys cherry-picked the, quote, intelligence, all right? Right. And then, and then it goes to uh, Dick Cheney, and then Dick Cheney talks to Judy Miller. Judy Miller writes the, uh, the article that then Dick Cheney and Condoleezza Rice go on the Sunday morning <coughs> TV talk shows to, to quote, and the article is talking about how, you know, there seems to be, there seems to be confirmation, this, this unnamed source, that unnamed source. Boy, she used more unnamed sources. And when you <laughs> see an, an article that has that many un- unnamed sources, you can bet it's just being planted there. So they give her the information, and then they quote her article that they provided the information for on, on the Sunday talk shows to push the agenda. It goes on and on. We just hope if we keep talking about it, perhaps we can break this cycle along the way. Christina, I, we, we could do hours on this, and we probably should over the next few weeks, because I want you to come back and talk about uh, a documentary that I know you have, uh, that you're working on, about uh, Flight 800, which we've talked about on the show more than once. Again, another example of multi-agency collusion, including the CIA, including the FBI, and the leadership of the National Transportation Safety Board with the DOD in the background. It's the same thing. And some, some of the same players, George Tenet. Remember George Tenet? Yes. It's a slam dunk for the Iraq War. George Tenet was involved in this, too. Well, Christina, I want to I wanna just plug your two books. I think everyone should have one in their home library. Uh, you edited Feet to the Fire, the Media After 9-11, and also Into the Buzzsaw, Leading Journalists Exposed the Myth of a Free Press. I'd like to talk about those again uh, this this coming year, and and just I'll just as we close, note that there is a movie I guess in the works about Gary Webb, and he wrote one of the most moving essays yes. into in your book into the buzzsaw. Yes. So we'll yes. do that. Okay. Christina Borgeson, thank you very much, and and I'm looking forward to, to that documentary. Looking forward to talking again. We we haven't talked in a while, and it's been far too long. Okay, Doug. Thanks. Always a pleasure to speak with Christina. I, I, I could cite all the stats on this great fiasco of the Iraq War. I just can't, can't do it. We're just not going to go there. At least not today. Let's instead take a look at the, uh, the 50th anniversary of Gideon versus Wainwright, which I believe we did talk about with Michael Trachtman in our, uh, our discussion of the Supreme's greatest hits, as in the U.S. Supreme Court. 
This case was a rather earth-shaking one in how it affected the American legal system. Clarence Earl Gideon was arrested in Florida in June of 1961 and charged with breaking into a pool hall to commit petty larceny. Gideon wrote the Supreme Court, petitioned them himself, protesting his innocent and noting that he was without means to hire an attorney. And when he asked the trial court to appoint one to represent him, that request was denied. Gideon was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. The Supreme Court ruled, after taking up the case, that because he was not assisted by an attorney, his conviction was invalid. Ruled on March 18, 1963, that the assistance of counsel was a fundamental right and that indigent defendants in all states had the right to the appointment of a counsel. I'm quoting in this from a piece by Benjamin Wagner and Linda Harder, special to the B, noting that the right to counsel is under duress due to sequester cutbacks. Well, I suppose that's one reason, but if you, dear listener, have ever found yourself involved in America's insane legal system, you realize that uh, sequester cutbacks may be the least of our problems. To quote Mr. Wagner and Ms. Harder in their piece to the B, In Gideon, the Supreme Court observed that in our adversary system of criminal justice, any person hauled into court who is too poor to hire a lawyer cannot be assured a fair trial unless counsel is provided to him. While far from perfect, the American judicial system today is the envy of much of the world, largely because of its reputation for procedural fairness. To which we would counter that based on its ability to sue anybody for anything with no legal penalty as opposed to almost every other civilized nation in the world, the American legal system is also frequently the laughingstock of the rest of the planet. And we at Radio Paradox would like to take a step back and address a question to Mr. Benjamin Wagner, attorney for the Eastern District of California, for the fact that, um, that our courts are jammed up, making it difficult to secure adequate counsel for all defendants, in no small part, because of the fact that we keep arresting the wrong people. To quote from a piece in last year's uh, Sacramento News and Review, which you can find on newsreview.com, the piece by David Downs was quoted, U.S. Attorney Breaks Silence on Medical Marijuana Battle. Quote, Benjamin Wagner broke the Department of Justice's near silence with regard to the crackdown on medical cannabis dispensaries during a candid hour-long talk and question and answer session at the Sacramento Press Cub Luncheon. The $30 a plate affair took place on the 15th floor of the 1201 K Street, and inside, Wagner admitted that the cannabis cleanup was the idea of four U.S. attorneys in California, not Washington, D.C. Yes, you heard that right. We talked about this in the show last year. It was the idea of the U.S. attorneys, including Benjamin Wagner. To quote from the piece by Downs, the four were upset because of what Wagner called flagrant marijuana sales in the state. So they declared war on medical marijuana last October, sending out hundreds of forfeiture warning letters to dispensaries across California. His office is in the process of seizing at least one dispensary in Sacramento, while officials have closed more or less every dispensary in Sacramento County. As you may or may not be aware, in the United States of America, we arrest 2,000 people every day on charges related to marijuana possession. And yet the same U.S. attorney writes pieces in the B complaining about how, thanks to sequester cutbacks, your right to counsel is under duress. Well, all I can say is before he sat down to write that piece, we don't know what he was smoking. 
anyway, there's some there's some hope that the Obama administration is going to uh, reach out and um, do something about their renegade U.S. attorneys. We'll have to see. Because as far as we understand it, you're supposed to elect people, <laughs> then choose people to implement policy. There's lower-end attorneys, U.S. attorneys in the uh, Department of Justice, are not supposed to set policy. That, that, that's our understanding. You know, just as the tail is not supposed to wag the dog. We'll continue to follow that story. In the meantime, if you get arrested, <laughs> good luck getting legal representation if you're poor. Your attorney may be busy defending pot cases. All right, final item to close this segment, which we should, I think, change the gears rather radically on, comes from Ireland. To quote a piece by Amy Chozik in the New York Times. During the Celtic tiger boom, referring to Ireland, beginning in the mid-1990s, snakes became a popular pet among the Irish nouveau riche, status symbols in a country famous for its lack of indigenous serpents. But after the bubble burst, many snake owners could no longer afford the cost of food, heating, or shelter, or they left the country for work elsewhere. Some left their snakes behind or turned them loose in the countryside, leading to some startling encounters. A California king snake was found last year in a vacant store in Dublin. A 15-foot python turned up in a garden in Mullingear. Noted the piece, during the boom, people treated these animals as conversation starters. And despite the legend about St. Patrick, it turned out Ireland has not had any snakes apparently since the last ice age. Well, like the Florida Everglades, apparently it does now. Note of the piece, like the country's housing boom and subsequent bust, the snake influx can partly be traced to European integration. In the years when Ireland stood somewhat apart from the broader European economy, it had strict regulations on the types of plants and animals that could be imported. But now Ireland's standards match the more relaxed rules of other members of the European Union. Which I think does point out some of the downsides to greater globalization. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more. Stick around.